Mark Twain once said, most people are bothered by those passages of Scripture which they cannot understand. But as for me, I've always noticed passages in Scripture which trouble me most are those which I do understand. Today is one such passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. When you come to a passage like this, you may be tempted to say that's exactly what I'm struggling with. I'm filled with shame. I'm filled with embarrassment. You may be tempted to say, I don't struggle with that, and be filled with pride or self-congratulation. But every one of us battles temptation and sin, and every one of us knows someone who is caught in some kind of sin. You may wonder, why are you preaching this at Christmas time? And the answer is very simple. It's the next passage in 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to stay away from the syrupy sentimentality of this season and, and look at something that is going to be helpful for all of us. This idea of holy. As we follow the Holy One, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean in your life? And how does it tie in following Christ, the Holy One of God, and how Christ's coming to earth to die for sinners and rise from the dead and promise to return, restore and renew all things, makes all the difference in your life. Most of us have weird ideas about holiness. When we think about it, we think of wearing, you know, weird, you know, puritanical or Victorian clothes or Maybe we think it means living a better life than everybody else, feeling really good about your life at a given moment, and going, well, I must be really holy right now. You might be on the other side of the coin and say, well, I'm going to get zapped if I, if, I stay out, if I get out of line. And probably most of us, when we think of holiness, would say it's about struggling for the unattainable. Holiness is not any of that. It, it is... It is this. It is God making believers more like Christ to reflect his character. It involves the engagement of your will, where you want to please God more than anything. Because if you want to please God, you must pursue holiness. And we see this pursuit addressed in this passage today as we explore holiness and the Holy One of God. Because it's about a holy God preparing a people to dwell forever with him in his presence. Holy living is required for all who would dwell with God. And a holy life is quite simply a humble life. A humble life. That's, that's what this passage really portrays for us. I tell people all the time that Grace Church of Orange is a humble church that we don't have a lot of flash and show, there's not a lot of guile, that people are not pretending and being fake. We are humble people that are wanting to follow Christ in humility. Like Augustine said, when asked what the most important thing in the Christian life is, he said, the first and the second and the third thing is humility. And if you would be holy, you must be humble, part of a beloved church that is, as we've seen in First Thessalonians, 
changed by the gospel and connected in relationships. That takes a lot of work. And committed to ministry in the name of Christ and for his glory. Knowing all the while we're navigating a broken world in our sinful brokenness. The immediate context here, chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, there's, there's a prayer, and it's that God would establish believers' hearts blameless in holiness, ultimate blameless in glorification, but even that there would be this progressive movement and work of God in the lives of believers such that they would reflect his character more. And then verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 sets the tone for everything we see today in our passage. When it's about the lordship of Christ and the authority of Scripture, that if you want to live a sanctified holy life, you must acknowledge the lordship of Christ and the authority of his word. He even begins in verse 1, finally, is starting to begin a really long conclusion with some big exhortations. He says, we urge you, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, you know you need to do it more and more because you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. It was on his authority. But the sanctified life is, is anchored in the lordship of Christ and the authority of his word. And what emerges then as we continue through this passage is a, a picture of humble holiness. It's not high-handed. It's not strutting around as if, wow, look how perfect we are. But we are imperfect and we are sinful. And, and so someone who is pursuing a life of holiness is going to be humble. And really that's what's getting portrayed in this, in this passage. And I'll just make several observations about what this passage is, is presenting to us. The first is this, that a holy life is, is marked by humble trust in God. Humble trust. I'm going to call this the negative side of holiness because we're being told to abstain from something. Pick it up in verse 3. It begins this way, for this is the will of God. This is what God wants. This is, this is what God is pleased with. This is what glorifies him. This is what he is working and willing for. It's your sanctification. You would be made more and more like Christ, the process whereby God makes you holy. But then it gets very specific. And it says that you abstain, literally that you keep yourself from, that you hold yourself back from sexual immorality. There's no question what God thinks about sexual sin. That you need to stay completely away from it if you're a professing believer. That holiness requires total abstinence from sexual immorality and fornication. And, and the word pornea here includes all types of sexual sins. Now, a year or two before this was written, the Jerusalem Council, recorded in Acts 15.20, ruled on a related issue regarding Gentile Christians. Here's what they said. You should abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. And if you practice these things, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. If you practice what we say here and keep yourself from those things, you're going to do well. You'll be in the will of God. You'll be pleasing to God. One, you have to wonder were the Thessalonians guilty of what Paul was saying here? Now, surely they were tempted. 
the strong words that he uses probably indicates some transgression had happened. They, they, some of them had sinned. Some of the believers had fallen into sexual sin. They lived in a city, Thessalonica, that had received the gospel, but everyone hadn't believed it. The, the gospel came there, but Thessalonica was a sex-saturated city, much like our cities today. The Greco-Roman world had, had a view of sex it was simply another biological function like eating and drinking. So when you were hungry, you ate. When you were thirsty, you drank. And when you craved sex, you had sex. There was no restrictions. There was no guilt. It was accepted and it was available whenever you wanted it. In that culture, sexual sin was linked to pagan religious practice. Pagan moral corruption looked upon fornication either indifferently, like it doesn't matter, or favorably. You should do that. That's what a lot of people do today. They're like, you know, I can be a Christian, but I can do whatever I want over here, even though God has said, you can't. And you can't follow me and keep doing this stuff without being repentant and turning from your sins. Believers, so it seems, had slipped into sin. And sexual morality, again, is... is referring to any kind of sexual behavior that's outside of what is prescribed by God and his word, and it's in action, it's in thought. You abstain, stay away from, refuse, decline it. You run away like Joseph, refusing the advances of Potiphar's wife. Or run away like the, the wise man of Proverbs. Because sex, according to God, finds its perfect fulfillment only in the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And sex was God's idea. Genesis 1.28. So we're not to deviate from the parameters that God has set. So sexual sin is to be avoided like the plague. It's detrimental to holiness. In Ephesians 5, we are instructed that sexual morality and impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you. We are told in 1 Peter 4 that we're to live no longer for human passions but for the will of God. We're told in 1 John that the world is passing away along with its lusts, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And then there's 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 5, and turn there in your Bibles with me, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul is reminding the church of something that they had gotten wrong. Now, if you want to get a quick sketch of 1 Thessalonians, it's you did this wrong and this wrong and this wrong and this wrong, but here's, I'm going to lay down what's right. So he says in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, excuse me, 1 Corinthians, I, I misspoke there, 1 Corinthians, uh, and the Corinthians were getting all these things wrong, and the Corinthians, here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with sexually immoral people. But I don't mean those of this world. See, Christians are like, oh yeah, we have to stay away from those bad unbelievers. And he's like, no, 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 they don't know any better. No, if anyone bears the name of brother, if they're saying they're a Christian, brother or sister, if they, they say they believe in Jesus and are following him and are guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, you could, the list could go on gossip, a glutton, whatever. Don't even eat a meal with such a one. 
in the situation where there's an unrepentant person who says they're a believer, really church discipline is called for so that they would have an opportunity to repent. And he goes on in chapter 6. And he says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And do you not know your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Paul was very concerned about the Corinthians. Back in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I, I fear for you that as, as Satan had deceived Eve, that you would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. We need to be like the psalmist in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. And the psalmist in Psalm 143, verse 10, teach me to do your will, O God. You're my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. And it is God's will for every Christian to be progressively sanctified. And in that quest, as your will is engaged, God has to be your guide in that. That you have to trust him in a humble way. Think of him as your trail guide. He's taking you along the treacherous terrain of life. And your mind is engaged and it's being assaulted with all sorts of false ideas. Dan Naw at our Grace Bible Institute recently said, it's amazing how many things that you can forget when you're not rehearsing them in your mind all the time. Jesus said out, out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and, and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. I think it's also amazing that the kind of things you can remember because you're always thinking about them. Philippians 4.8 says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable and just and pure and right and lovely and commendable, if anything is worthy of praise, think about these things. I don't think there's many of you that would agree to live your life with a ball and chain around your leg. A big heavy chain and a big metal ball. And just kind of drag it along and, you know, well, I've got this, I chose it, and I, I kind of like it, and I know it's heavy and it's kind of hurting my back, but this is my deal. Nobody would choose that. But how, how many of us will choose to bring along a certain sin in our lives and think it's okay? And basically, everyone else can see the ball and chain that you're dragging around, and this is what happens when we allow any kind of sin to overtake us and be unchecked and just act as if it's okay. We're instructed in Hebrews 12 to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Trust, the humble trust, is is saying no to ourselves. It's you saying no to yourself and yes to God. Like you say, he knows better than me. My mind is playing tricks on me and, and his will and his word is perfect. John Owen wrote a 80-page booklet called The Mortification of Sin. This, it, they came from a, a group of sermons that he preached probably to teenagers at Oxford University. 
And he said, if you're not killing sin, it will be killing you. But his most memorable one-liner, which would be shocking to most Christians today, goes like this. Let not that man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. You gotta just run away. What we do often is say, well, I'll take care of this with brute force strength. I will just do this on my own. I don't need to tell anyone about it. The problem is you're in quicksand, your foot is caught, you got a ball and chain around you, and you can't get out of that alone. We think, I'll just modify my behavior. I'll just do something different tomorrow. And then you just keep doing the same thing. Because it starts in your heart. And what starts in your heart determines how you're going to choose. We're told to make no provision for the flesh and kill sin by the power of the Spirit. That's and by the way, that's not an in, in and of itself. Like, okay, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm holier now. I'm living better now. I feel better about myself now. That's not an end in and of itself. The Spirit's sanctification is a vital means to the end of the glory of God where you live in perfect fellowship with the Holy God. Holiness is Christ-likeness. So the works of the flesh must be replaced with the works of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit. This was the point of Thomas Chalmers' famous sermon on 1 John 2.15, the expulsive power of a new affection, where Christ is your delight. Because sanctification is not merely overcoming sin. It is delighting in Christ. It is becoming more like Jesus. Romans 8.29 tells us the Father has predestined every believer to be conformed to the image of Christ. That by the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Holiness and Christ-likeness and sanctification is, is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12.14. The idea is there's nothing in your life that will stand in God's presence unless there's christ Nothing in us that is not like Christ will stand in his presence. So are you, are you abstaining? Are you avoiding? Are you, are you running away from sin or are you running to it? Are you, are you looking for it? Are you hunting it down? Are you, are you waking up in the morning planning out what you're going to do? And if so, if... if, if the trajectory of your life is, I'm going to plan out my sin. Your foot is caught in a trap, in an addiction, because you're either enslaved or free. It's for freedom that Christ set us free, and we are not to be subject again to a yoke of slavery. This is why Paul is giving us these words, in light of Christ coming to the earth to die for sinners. A holy life looks like a humble trust. Verse 3. Also, a second idea here is that a holy life looks like humble honor. Verses 4 through 6. And I'll call this the positive side of holiness. Where you learn to control your body. Verse 4 says that each of 
one of you know how that you would have the knowledge and the skill necessary to accomplish a desired goal, that you would know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. To learn how to control your own body. Some will translate this a little differently and say it's the idea of learning how to dwell with your spouse, to learn how to live with your own spouse, to, to live with your spouse in a holy and pure way. If it's that, it's, it's telling us that a good marriage is God's answer for sexual immorality. And if it refers to your body, it means whether single or married, you must live a pure life. This is what God wants. Holiness. The word holiness is, is found, it's a simple word that's found over 900 times in the Bible. And you first find it in the first uh, part of the Bible in Genesis, where God is creating the heavens and the earth. You find it in the last chapter of Revelation where God is creating the new heavens and the new earth. And the idea behind the word being used there is that God has set apart his creation for himself. So when you think of the new creation, his new creation is in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. The old things have passed away, new things have come. And the word holy, that's where we get our word from the same root. We get our words saint and sanctify and sanctification And they all carry the idea of being set apart to God. Holiness. Also, you'll notice in this verse, it also has the word honor. That's a special word. Honor. It means that there's a value. There's a preciousness. There's a a price. You treat as valuable your body and other people's bodies. Because they're from God. That holiness and honor describes the way to maintain the right mindset in singleness and marriage. Holiness is due to God. That honor is due to God and and your spouse and others. In fact, in Romans 12, it says, I appeal to you by the mercies of God. Everything that Romans 1 through 11 says to present your bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 5 tells us, not in the passion of lust. The idea of, of not letting lust be the ruling or overriding principle of your life. Don't do that because that's like the Gentiles who do not know God. That's a common expression for Gentiles, those that are unbelievers, those that have not placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ based on his finished work on the cross in our place for our sins. And they say, no, I I don't believe that. Those who do not know God, they have no idea what God's word says. They have no idea how Christians are to live. They, They know nothing of a holy and honorable lifestyle. Said, don't Live in the passion like that. You've been brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light as a Christian. Verse 6 tells us that no one transgress and wrong his brother in the matter, brother or sister. That no one transgress. Don't go beyond. Don't exceed the proper limits. Don't override righteousness and sound reason. Don't transgress and don't wrong. Don't defraud. Don't claim more for yourself. Don't selfishly attempt to get what you want and disregard other people. 
don't transgress or defraud your brother in this matter. Because wronging or taking advantage of a brother or sister in Christ violates God's holiness. And defrauding a fellow Christian especially is a heinous sin because it robs a, a spiritual family member, a spiritual relative. Most often, the, the woman is the object of abuse in such a situation. It's repulsive to God. Paul told the Corinthians, you, you wrong and defraud each other. You wrong and defraud your own brothers. And he goes on to say, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, who those who practice homosexuality, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And, and he, he follows it up with saying, but and such were some of you. You were washed, you were sanctified in Christ. That's picturing a repentant believer who's humble and is trusting God and lives to honor him. Even if they still fall in sin, they, 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 they want to get up and confess their sins and keep following the Lord and not say that what they're doing is right. In Leviticus 25, it says, You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And I brought up that there's the positive and negative aspects to this. Abstain, but also control. Abstain from sexual immorality and control your body. There was a 31-year-old man that was born in Algeria. His name was Aurelius Augustinus. We know him as Augustine. And he, at that moment in his life, was on the verge of despair so extreme, he couldn't stop the tears from flowing. And as he put it, the scriptures randomly opened up. We know it was providential. But it opened up to Romans 13, 14. That verse says this. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You'll notice there's an emphasis on the positive, putting on, balance with the negative, make no provision. It, it repeats over and over again in the New Testament. In Galatians 5.24, those who belong to Christ, positive, have crucified the flesh, negative. You see it in Ephesians 4, put on yourself, which belongs to your former manner of life, which is corrupt through deceitful desires. There's your negative. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. There's the positive. Just over and over again. Put to death, Colossians 3, 5, whatever is earthly of you, negative, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And then Colossians 3, 12, put on as God's chosen ones. Here's the positive. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, Patience. 2 Timothy 2, flee youthful lusts, negative. Pursue, there's the positive, righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You need the church. When we fall, we often experience the discipline of God. Hebrews 12 says that he disciplines us for our good that we would share his holiness. We're told to strive for peace with everyone and a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
1 Corinthians 7 says, because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Paul even says in 2 Corinthians that he was mourning over those who had not repented of their sin. Those who sinned and have not repented of the impurity and the sexual morality and the sensuality. Which means that you don't mourn over those who repent of those things. You rejoice with them. That God has set them free. I know there's one thing we cannot do. We cannot get any human government to pass a law that changes human nature. There was once a a statesman that was asked in front of a Senate Judiciary Committee, what's your answer to all the problems in American society? And he answered, pass a law changing human nature and make it retroactive to the Garden of Eden. You can't do it. We're all born in sin. We often choose to wallow in that sin. And we all know we live in a sex-drenched society where literally, I mean, young kids can be on their phones and see any number of, of outrageous things that God does not approve at any moment of the day and night. Morals are frowned upon in our society. Immorality is common. And some of you are like, and I, I'm just going to pause for a moment and say, some of you are like this. Nope, I'm not buying this. Press pause for a moment. Some of you might be saying, I'm not buying this. I can do what I want, and God still loves me no matter what. Now, parse that out any way you want. But if you're a professing Christian, and you're saying, I can do whatever I want, and it's against what God has said in his word, something's really, really wrong. In George Orwell's uh, book, 1984, there was a room it was called Room 101, and it was the torture and brainwashing room. Turns out, at Grace Church, this is Room 101. <laughs> now, the only way that this would ever feel like the torture and brainwashing room for you is if you do not acknowledge the lordship of Christ and the authority of Scripture. The only way that this would seem to you like the torture and brainwashing room is if you insist upon self-willed ways with no repentance. The key is repentance. God in his kindness leads us to repentance when we sin. You're a believer. Now this is the security and freedom room where we come together, where we open our Bibles together, where God does a work in our hearts where we surrender our wills to Jesus. And he builds us up together in the faith and strengthens us for coming days honor. Humble honor. Honor is putting others before you. Honor is considering others more important than yourself. Honor is where you don't manipulate the outcomes. You do what is good and right and true for all involved. You honor God and your fellow believers by your adherence to scripture. Abstaining from sexual sin is is directly connected to how well you control your body. The fruit of the Spirit of God is self-control. 
on it. It's like this. God has written, it's like God has written no trespassing over anyone who is not your own spouse. And he's saying to us, trespassers will be prosecuted. He's saying to us, do not cross the boundaries that God never intended to be crossed. And yes, everyone's reputation matters. But Christ's reputation matters most. And I've got it on a good authority. The Lord Jesus himself, who said in John 13, 34, and 35, and elsewhere, that all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. What he's essentially saying is the world gets to decide whether you are truly a follower of Christ by what they observe in your life. They get to decide if you belong to Christ. They'll make that judgment. God knows. The Lord knows those who are his. 2 Timothy 2 tells us, well, everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. The holy life looks like humble trust in Jesus. The holy life looks like humble honor of God and other people. And one last idea, thirdly, a holy life looks like humble fear of God. Humble fear of God. Look at the last part of verse 6 with me. Because the Lord is the avenger. That, that word avenger is a very strong word. It means he's the one that carries out the sentence after the sentence, after the legal decision. He is the official legal representative, and he carries out what is right. He's the one who carries out the sentence. He's the avenger. He's the judge. He's the judge in all of these things, in all such sins. There's going to be punishment. And, and the question we want to probably ask is, when will that punishment come? Is it going to come like in Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira like dropped dead right away? Is it going to come like in the Old Testament where the ground opened up and swallowed them up whole? This is pointing to, and this is sometimes why some of us go, you know, it's not that big a deal. I'll work it out. Because this is a future judgment. But we believe in the promised imminent return of Christ. This is not an immediate judgment that's being spoken of here. Even when God says in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. In Romans 12, 19, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's Jesus speaking. Jesus is the judge. He's the avenger. But it's not an immediate judgment. It's a future judgment of Christians at the return of Christ. And the judgment will be carried out by Christ with the Father. Urgency here because of the imminent return of Christ requires these very stern words. There are consequences. Because verse 7 tells us God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. There's another reason to obey God's calling. What kind of calling is this? This is his effectual calling to salvation through the preaching of the gospel. That those called by the gospel are not called to sexual impurity, but a holy life. That holiness results from the calling. That if you're a believer, you now belong to a community with vastly different views and values than the rest of the world. And that's why he says in verse 8, therefore, this is the big idea here. 
Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. There's another reason to obey. God-given commands, his standards. Rejecting them means rejecting God. It means, I don't care what God says. And believers don't say they don't care what God says. Disregard means do away with what's laid down authoritatively, to reject completely, to set something aside and say it's not important, to spurn it, to despise it. Where God in Leviticus said, I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We are to walk worthy of the calling. Ephesians 4.1 That 1 Peter 1 tells us, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God tells believers, I will make you holy. Jesus said in John 12, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. This is sobering. Here's what he said. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. First John tells us whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this we know that he abides in us by his spirit whom he has given us. You'll notice the last words in this passage is who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Holy Spirit lives in you. You're a believer. Queen Victoria of England uh, would often visit the humble cottages of her subjects. And one time she visited a widow and enjoyed some sweet Christian fellowship. As it turns out, all of the widow's neighbors would ridicule this woman for her Christian faith. They would make fun of her often and mock her. And after the queen left, they asked her a question. Who's the most important guest you've ever had at your house? They were expecting her to say Jesus. But she said, well, the most honored guest that I've ever had was Her Majesty the Queen. And they immediately started mocking her. What about this Jesus you're always talking about? Why isn't he your most honored guest? And she replied, he's not a guest. He lives here. Fear of God is where you don't want to grieve God who lives in you. You know what he wants and you don't want to fall short and you think about the outcomes before you make a decision. Commentator Tim Shenton said, it's inconceivable that a holy God would call any of us to any kind of uncleanness. His commands are unambiguous. A Christian who shows contempt for God's law is showing contempt for God himself who gives us his Holy Spirit. To live in an unholy manner while receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit is both insulting and grievous to God. If we reject what God says here, we reject God. But if you put sin to death, if you confess your sins, it's an act of worship. I think a healthy fear of God is probably the best thing for your soul today and for this church. Anything less than knowing Christ and becoming like him is not worth living for. Only what reflects him will last forever. 
You know, we're not a museum here of all these perfect people. We are imperfect temples of the living God. An altar full of living sacrifices. Second Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And let's just say that today, and I'm not one that lives on statistics, but it would be absolutely foolish to think that Grace Church is some outlier of a church that everybody uh, is, is someone who's praying for someone else to listen to this message. If your foot is caught in a sin, what do you do? First, admit it. Ask for help. It's like you're in quicksand and you can't get yourself out. Confide in a trusted friend who will not condemn you, but who will also not condone what you are doing. Confess your sins one to another. The Lord Jesus is the avenger and God gives his Holy Spirit to us. J. Oswald Sanders said, the ministry of the Spirit is Christ-centered. And the test of any professed movement of the Spirit, whether in personal or corporate experience, is the place it gives to Christ. Let us fix our eyes and our hearts and minds on Jesus. In Luke 1, Mary is told some startling news. Here's what she was told. The Holy Spirit will come upon you And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Literally, God Almighty. Mary sang a a praiseful response. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She bore the Son of God. It was not without its cost. She was accused wrongly of sexual immorality. And so was Joseph. We stand accused rightly for all of our sin. Joseph and Mary were accused of sexual immorality. Jesus was accused of being a child of sexual immorality. They said to Jesus in John 8, we don't come from sexual immorality. We don't come from fornication like you. They were calling him something that I will not say right now. You know what they were calling him. During Christ's ministry, the demons couldn't help themselves. As every tongue would one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, one demon cried out, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. He was and always is perfect in holiness. He's the judge. He's the judge. But he is also the sympathizer. He is the sympathizer. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy 
We find grace to help in time of need. Transforming power of the gospel is good news. And former prostitutes and thieves and sexually perverse and alcoholics can find forgiveness in Christ. You can find forgiveness in Christ. We are real people in a real world who have been transformed. If you're in Christ, transformed by a real God. 1 Corinthians 6.11, after that whole list of sins, he says, and such were some of you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. That's what happens with the repentant. I do think that the passages of Scripture that we understand may be most frightening of all. We all battle sin. We all have some particular sins where our foot keeps getting caught in the same trap and you confess your sins and still you fall. And there's sins you battle and there's sins you give into and there's sins you go after. And whether it's giving thanks to God in all things, which is the will of God, and whether it's abstaining from sexual immorality, which is the will of God, and exercising self-control, it's always difficult to do. It's otherworldly to do, to do what God wants. It's counterintuitive. It can only be accomplished by the power of God. And purity is God's will. And it is true that we're going to be prideful or we're going to be shameful today. With pride, it's that's not me. Pride goes before destruction. And with the shame and the condemnation where you say, I'm ruined, let me point you to first Isaiah 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the response was, I am done. I am unclean. See, there's no room for self-righteousness. God dwells with the, with the lowly broken. Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Do you feel crushed by the weight of your sin? Do you feel ashamed about what you have done? Do you find yourself burdened by what you have chosen? Do you cry out to God to, to eliminate the cravings? Do you feel like your heart is broken? Maybe you feel like it's difficult to navigate life with so many difficult people around you. Maybe you're proud that you're doing so much better than others. Maybe you wonder why some people can't get their act together. Maybe it is difficult to forgive and forget. Maybe it is you beating yourself up because of your inability to stop sinning. Christ was born for you. He came to earth to save sinners. The Holy One can forgive your sin. The Holy One can remove your shame. The Holy One can carry you through hardship. The Holy One can heal your brokenness. The Holy One can answer your questions. The Holy One can change your heart towards people. The Holy One can remove your pride. The Holy One can help you not judge. The Holy One can help you forgive. The Holy One can help you, can renew your mind. The Holy One can change you. The Holy One can break your addictions. The Holy One can make you selfless. The Holy One can give you hope. The church is not a museum for perfect pottery or pristine paintings. We are imperfect people worshiping the perfect King of kings and Lord of lords in all of his loving holiness. 
as we sang earlier, come all you unfaithful. You know, when God in his kindness leads you to repent and it melts your heart, we're in the same boat. And Jesus is our rescuer. And I want you to know today that you are more loved than you know by God and people. And that you don't need the sin that's so ruinous to your soul. You're worth more than the cheap goods that were sold to you. Come all you unfaithful. Boldly to the throne to receive mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. Help from the Holy One of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that our declaration before you would be all praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. Born to save sinners. Turning shameful hiding into free repentance and forgiveness. Weightlifting grace, mercy, abounding to our souls. Placing our burden with blessings. Believers buried with Christ and raised to new life. We would seek to live holy lives empowered by the Holy Spirit, knowing that material beauty will never be enough. The best of earth will never meet the deepest longing of our souls. All of our eager longings for the perfect Christmas, or the perfect gift, or the perfect job, or the perfect relationship, or the perfect church. The perfect life cannot satisfy. Only you, Lord Jesus, our holy, perfect Savior. May we proclaim your perfections until you come again. Amen.